Welcome to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors and collectors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our live interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, what they have in their personal collections, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their life and writing in revealing conversations with our book specialist, Roger Nichols. And find us at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. Now sit back and enjoy a few minutes with Modern Sign Books. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Our guest this morning is Ridley Pearson, author of more than 50 novels. His work has been published in two dozen languages and been adopted by network television. His book, Peter and the Starcatcher, is written with Dave Barry, was adapted by Rick Ellis into a Broadway play that won five Tony Awards. Speaking of awards, he was the first person to be awarded the Raymond Chandler Fulbright Fellowship in Detective Fiction from Oxford University in 1990. was the Missouri Writer Hall of Fame Quill Award winner in 2013. In addition, he plays bass and sings with the Dead Bottom Remainders, a rock group composed solely of writers. His latest is White Bone, the fourth thriller featuring Rutherford Risk agents John Knox and Grace Chu. We are very pleased to have Ridley Pearson with us today. Good morning and welcome. Good morning, Roger. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's absolute delight. Now, in, in checking out some of the background on it, I discovered that you have said that your family influenced you in that you had some very interesting grandfathers and father. Yeah, you know, I, I'm often asked, how did you become a writer? And it, it dawned on me that my uh, both sides, my grandfathers on both sides, one had, uh, in the late 1800s, had laid telegraph table and had lived with Native Americans and used to put me on his lap. And I'm sure most of them were fiction, but he told me these wonderful stories about living with the Native Americans and laying that wire across the country. Uh, and my paternal grandfather had one of those amazing uh, memorization minds and he learned long form poetry and would set me down uh, I, I distinctly remember being in the living room of our house and he would recite you know charge of the light brigade to me and things so I think sort of the oral tradition of storytelling was being imposed on me as, as a young man a very young man five six seven years old uh, before I even realized what was happening. And and later in life, I took to doing it myself, and it took me a while to realize I'd been around it all my life. And it, it, you know, it's like the fish doesn't notice the water that you swim in because it's part of your natural yeah, exactly. environment. No, yeah. that's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you also mentioned that your, your father told stories at the dinner table. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, that was, a, that was sort of a requirement. And if you... If you told a story at the dinner table, and my dad was a writer, uh, he worked for Shell Oil for 38 years, so he was in, in public relations there, what they called that then, and if you misused a word, we had a, I still got it, we, we had a giant unabridged dictionary in the dining room, and you had to go over to the dictionary, look up the word, and tell everybody both how to spell it and what it meant. Uh, um, but yeah, he, he was a great rock hunter, my dad. See, I can see why why the the writing comes naturally. Don't realize that most people do not keep the unabridged in the in the dining room. That's just interesting. No, that's right. Nor nor make you get up from your seat and go read <laughs> to the family what the word actually means. Now that you've butchered it, and now of course you just grab your phone and look it up online. So um, <laughs> that's so true. Yes. Oh my! 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Wait, I also want to mention that, that you have a parallel career in music because you mentioned you started playing, uh, I think it was the baritone ukulele at age four. I did. I started very, very young and uh, went on in my late teens and most of my 20s to try to be James Taylor, traveling all over the country and singing folk rock music. And uh, during those years, actually, is when I started to write novels and, uh, and screenplays. And I wrote for uh, over eight and a half years without ever selling anything and finally wow. sold my first novel, which was about my, you know, 14th try at something. So it was, a, it was the, the school of hard knocks. <laughs> there you go. But you're also writing songs at the same time, right? Yes, I did for my bands. I wrote, I think, over 300 songs. And that's partly why I got writing uh, screenplays and, and novels was that you know, telling a story in 24 stanzas mm -hmm. uh, 300 times gets very claustrophobic and confining, and I just I wanted to reach out to a longer form. So I tried some, some screenplays. I don't know if you remember Columbo and Quincy and shows like that, but Absolutely. I wrote a number of those, never was able to sell any of them, but um, got an agent and got a mentor. I think a lot of writing and a lot of the arts, you rely on mentors, and I was just lucky. I had three gentlemen that were really influential in my life, and uh, I owe a career to them. So now I try to give back, and I volunteer teach at middle schools and, and try to mentor myself. And, and it, it sounds like fun. I watched a little bit on your website of uh, you telling a story about uh, the train going over the mountain and getting out and having to push. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That was quite an experience. That was way. Uh, that was back in 1970, and I, you know, the little train that could. Well, I was on the little train that couldn't, and it was quite the experience. In fact, we were almost killed because of that. But it was uh, it was an amazing experience. But you used that as a, as a metaphor and a, and a parable, as it were, and said that's what writing a novel is like: getting out and pushing the train over the top of the mountain. Yeah, you know, you start your day and it's all sunny and beautiful, just as we did on that trip back in the in 1970. And and by the end of that day, we were trying to literally. They had all the men off the train, trying to push the train up and over the mountain, uh, in order to beat getting hit head on by sort of a Casey Jones experience. And uh, that is so much what writing is like. You start the day, you're all cheerful, everything is going great, and by about two in the afternoon, you're pulling your hair out. <laughs> But sure, it's all worth it. Now, and and I want to get in just a little bit in the process here before we get into the, the story of White Bone. And that is that I have heard you say that you write six revisions of everything. Yeah, that's usually what I go through. It's kind of sad. I think there, there are some writers that are a lot smarter than me that are able to do it in one or two. But for whatever reason... Uh, it seems to be that the way I write is I write a very long draft, and then uh, I'm an outliner, so then I rearrange my outline and rearrange the book and start cutting and adding and cutting and adding, and uh, eventually I get it to an editor, and she has suggestions, and I cut and edit and cut and edit, and I don't think of the 50 books, I don't think more than one or two uh, has ever been published without being rewritten in its entirety at least four times. Uh, that's just the process I go through. But hopefully, uh, I get the fat and the air out of them, and they're page turners and entertain you as well as inform you. I mean, that's my 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 effort with books like White Bone are to have some sort of social issue. In this case, the poaching of elephant in Africa, 
and, uh, you know, to entertain you, but also leave you thinking about something. Uh, so it isn't just complete marshmallow. Yeah. And, and the balance between the narrative force keeping you turning the pages and the character, because you have to care about the people, is that's a tough one. And you really got that one nailed, I think. Well, thanks. I, I think that all fiction ultimately is about the character. Uh, if you write plot, 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 the person throws the book across the room because they don't care. <laughs> so I think ultimately you just have to, you have to create a rooting interest in your characters. And then the, uh, you know, the reader will stay with you to see what they've got to go through to, to get out the other side of this. So I think you'd really rather have a book more character than plot. I tend to be a plot heavy guy, but hopefully I'm creating characters that you care about so you'll stay through all my machinations of plot <laughs> well not only do you have a couple of characters you've been working with john knox and grace chu here for i think this was three other books um you introduced bishop a streetwise 14 year old yes. fascinating blend of streetwise and sometimes naivete and pushiness and backing off it's it's really a, a very effective and engaging sort of character well, I wanted a way to get inside the local tribal life in Kenya, having visited there. And um, I've done a lot of world travel, and whenever you arrive in a third world country, uh, in almost every airport in the world, there's somebody trying to sell you something or give you a trip or let you into the world. And it's often these 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. And... Uh, my family, uh, not legally, but in every other way, adopted a boy from Kenya about 12 years ago. He's now 23 in the pride of my life, uh, Bishop Kamusinga. And so Bishop became, because he's from Kenya, uh, I imagined his life as a 12-year-old and uh, brought him into the book to give the readers you know, a view into a different side of Kenya that I'm not sure you would see through a white person's eyes. Yeah. So what does the the real bishop think of the bishop character? <laughs> I, the book just came out two days ago. I don't think he's read it yet. I, I hope he won't, you know, <laughs> walk into the house and throw a piece of mud in my face or something. <laughs> um, he's just the greatest guy there is. And, uh, of course, I take – he's not at all the character in the book, but I named him after him. John Knox connects with Bishop in the book and realizes a couple a couple different times in the book that in many ways – He's put his life in the hands of like this 13-year-old street urchin from uh, from Kenya, and you know what on earth has he done? But Bishop proves his his worth and uh, and his mettle, and uh, and and stands most of the time stands by John's side. Yeah, without giving any plot away. But we also want to say that the the it's a dual adventure. You back and forth between uh, Grace's experience. She has been abandoned in the in the bush and is in danger because there are wild animals out there who will track and kill and eat her. And she, how she deals with that is a fascinating survival story within the larger context. Yeah, and I, again, in going to Kenya uh, and knowing that, one, there were going to be two forces in the book that, that alternated back and forth. We were going to see Grace in the Wild, where she has been dumped so that she... It's really a homicide, but... It's a homicide by exposure. They're just going to make her look like she's a tourist who's wandered off the path and, and can't survive the African bush. And on the other side is John Knox, 
who runs to Kenya knowing that she's disappeared and has to chew through layers of deception and mistrust to find where Grace may be. Uh, and in doing that research, I ended up with a Maasai guide uh, in northern Kenya in a little little place called Nanyuki. And uh, I said, you know, I'm an Eagle Scout, and I know a lot about survival. Uh, this was to my guide. How long, you know, how long could I make it in the bush? And he sized me up and down, and he said, you wouldn't make it 24 hours. And I said, no, 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 I actually understand how to survive. And he said, sir, you wouldn't make it 24 hours. And so I said, okay, well, my character is a woman, and she needs to make it four days in the wild. Teach me how to do this. And we spent the next four days digging up roots and looking at leaves and finding water sources uh, so that I could put Grace in the wild uh, all alone, terrified, and yet find a way for her to make it through. And so all those tips that that she has, and she has somebody who shares some of them with her so that she knows some of these things, uh, are, are actual real things. Yeah, they're all for real, and all those bushes exist, and all those seeds exist. There's a seed that will take away your appetite. There's a tree that you can slice, and it's amazing. This weird white milk comes out of it. But if you put that on the end of a stick and and poke somebody with it, they're dead within seconds. Yeah, um, it's just it's all fascinating stuff, and it's right there, you know. It's, but but as as a visitor, you would just never know that all around you are these means to both defend yourself and to survive in the bush. But it took a Maasai warrior to show me the way. Yeah, I I, I think the thing that that is fascinating is that she is smart enough to do all of this. Some of which is kind of you know, like taking because animals track by scent, taking off all your clothes and smearing yourself with dung. Uh, it's not not the normal way to to survive, but that's what you have to do because there are yeah predators out there. Yeah, and that was the first thing he told me. He, you know, he said, "Would you leave your clothes on?" And I said, "Yeah, look at this sun. You know, the sun just bakes you." And he said, "No, sir. You leave your clothes on, you're dead very quickly." He said, "You've got to get your clothes off. You want to smear yourself with mud." to keep the insects off. You want to smear yourself with dung to, to get the human smell off you. And you can't even leave your undershorts on. Everything has to be gone. And if you're smart, you'll burn your clothes somehow because you don't want the animals around looking for you. It's kind of human scent is, I as I take it, is kind of like blood in the water for sharks. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's an unusual scent for the wild animals of Africa. And they kind of go, oh, look, hors d'oeuvres. And they, <laughs> they start looking for you. I th it's it's absolutely fascinating stuff, and and so you you're able to combine the two. I mean you, I mean her specialty is obviously is is forensic uh, accounting and finding out you know follow the money where do, where do things go? Right, she, exactly. Because because a million dollars worth of AIDS vaccine has gone missing, which happens in Africa. Sadly, these you know all our best efforts uh, send a terrific you know. Uh, product or drug to Africa, and it quickly gets substituted with a fake, a placebo, so that the real thing can be sold in another country. Uh, and, you know, 10,000 people take the wrong drug. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is, is, is a frightening and scary thing. And, and corruption is so difficult when the, the, the culture is not ready for it or has not proved ready right, for it. And right. It's, it's, it's a, it's, uh, what, what's the, the line from uh, Glenn Fry's uh, song about uh, it says it's the lure of easy money. It's a very strong appeal. 
So, uh, yes, exactly. And and I think you know all cultures work differently, and because the tribal culture in Africa has for thousands of years worked off of barter um, and exchange. Uh, really, every deal of of whether it's financial or otherwise involves some form of graft, whether that's a favor or whether that's money or whether that's an introduction. Uh, you know, there are different levels of it, but every single transaction works at that level. Uh, and, you know, no one's going to change that. It's been going on for thousands of years. So it's a, it's a question of how do Westerners adapt to that and figure that out and come to understand it and in some cases investigate it. And you've become pretty invested in it. I, I noticed in the back of the book you say that you're donating 20% of the proceeds and, and any film thing that comes out of it to these uh, groups that are protecting the elephants or trying to keep the ivory trade down or, or the illegal trade in ivory. Yeah, well, the numbers are that a million two elephants existed in 79, and now there's less than 400,000. I mean, we're losing 100 a day, 30,000 a year. And, uh, you know, that's intolerable. I mean, in nine years, there will be no African elephants in the wild. Yeah. And what I think we don't realize as Westerners is that if you even send $10 to one of these places, it has an enormous effect. You think of it as, oh, I'm not doing anything. Why would I bother to send 10 or $15 or, or donate it over the Internet? Well, that, that $10, that $25, it has a huge effect. In Kenya, in the last two years, in part because they've started to do ivory burns and um, you know, uh, make people aware of the problem of the ivory poaching, they've been able to reduce poaching in that one country by over 80%. So, I mean, there are ways to fix this, but we have to do something, and we have to do it right now. And I'm grateful for you for putting in uh, contact information for uh, four or five uh, reputable firms or reputable agencies that will do the right yeah, thing. Yeah, you bet. Like, there, there are so many agencies, and some of them, you're, when you give $10, some of them, you know, $9.50 goes to where it needs to. And some of them, 10 cents goes to where it needs to. So I've tried to mention the few that I came in contact with that I trust implicitly and who do a fabulous job over there. Yeah, we only have a, a few minutes. That I, I would be remiss if I did not ask the very first uh, person that I've ever had a chance to talk to about your rock group from that, the amazing. <laughs> I, I, I want to say that I watched, you did a killer lead uh, version of um, Good Rockin' Tonight. Uh, on and I was very yeah. impressed. Well, thanks. We have so much fun. We have uh, the, the band you're referring to is the Rock Bottom Remainders, and we are probably the worst rock and roll group you've ever seen, but we're all authors. So it's Stephen King, Amy Tan, Dave Barry, uh, me, Greg Isles, Mitch Album, Roy Blunt Jr., James McBride, um, uh, you know, we're a bunch of best-selling authors that have absolutely no musical skill, but we're able to attract people to our shows. All of the money from the shows goes to nonprofits. We've raised uh, $3 million over 25 years of playing. But the, the sad part is, Roger, we've never, we've never gotten one bit better, so we're still sort of the worst rock group you've ever seen. But, you know, those, of, those people, are the, the high school bands and whatnot, you don't, you don't have to play well. You just have to play loud and close to tune. And I love the line where it says, this band plays music as well as Metallica writes novels. And that is the truth. Dave Barry says we play by the rumor method. 
which is that there's a rumor there's been a chord change and everybody sort of goes to find it. But, but boy, do we have fun. And as I say, we've raised a lot of money for good causes, so who cares? It's fantastic stuff. Uh, we have to roll out of here pretty quickly, but is there anything you would like to say to, to our listeners? You know, I just think that uh, on the elephant, on the white bone front, um, first, I hope they buy the book and enjoy it. Uh, second, I hope that we, we come away from this kind of thing, realizing that even a small donation of $5, $10 to the causes that we really care about, uh, every little bit helps. You don't have to be a millionaire and give $10,000 to make a difference. And, uh, and especially in the case of trying to save the African elephant, every little bit helps. And I hope that after reading the book, you will care as much as I do about trying to make sure the wild elephant survives and, uh, you know, we'll do your part to, to try to keep this from, from eliminating elephants from the planet. All right. And you can get a signed copy of White Bone for VJ Books. Yes, you can. VJ <laughs> Books is terrific. They've been a wonderful partner for years of mine. Fantastic, folks. Uh, that's uh, an, uh, it for today. Our thanks so much. Uh, our guest has been Ridley Pearson. The book is White Bone. Highly recommended. Thanks so much for sparing the time with us this morning. You've been very generous. Thank you, Roger. All right. You've been listening to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio with book specialist Roger Nichols. Be sure to check us out at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com.